we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And this week, we're going to be talking about E-Verify. This is the online free system that employers can use to check the legal status of their new hires. It's a voluntary system, so only about half of new hires in the country are screened through this. But if you do sign up for it, you got to use it for everybody, even if they don't seem to be illegal aliens. It's just a standard thing. You put in your the information you have to collect anyway for IRS and Social Security. It just goes to DHS and also Social Security just to verify that the name, date of birth, and Social Security number are real and match, and that person is authorized to work. To talk about it, we have in the studio Liz Jacobs, one of our staff who wrote a piece on E-Verify that's on our website, cis.org, and it'll be linked in the show notes. She was in the legal shop at USCIS during the Trump administration and has a lot of experience with the whole issue of regulations with regard to the kinds of things that USCIS does. And this program in particular, E-Verify, is run by USCIS. So before we get to you, Liz, I just want to give some of the background before the program became anything like E-Verify. The idea of verifying the work authorization, the legal status of new hires, is something that dates back actually quite a ways, but at least to the report of the Select Commission on Immigration Reform, which was released in 1979, called the Hesburgh Commission, because the then president of Notre Dame University, Father Ted Hesburgh, was the chairman of it. And at the time, technology being what it was, they were talking about like a telephone-based system. The idea bounced back and forth, actually all of the recommendations of that commission, from 1979 until 1986, when its basic outline was passed by Congress. And there was no mandate for any kind of worksite electronic verification. What the 1986 law did was set up this paper system using what is called the I-9 form. It's still used for everybody. The way E-Verify works now is that you take the I-9 information, fill out the form, but also check online. I wanted to have Liz in the studio to talk about a little background on E-Verify and what's the status of it now. So Liz, thanks for coming in. And so E-Verify was originally not called E-Verify. What's the sort of more recent background, not the not from the 80s, but from the 90s. Thank you for having me. E-Verify is very important. So E-Verify was created by Congress in 1996 as a part of his big immigration reform law. It was first referred to as a basic pilot program. And what E-Verify did, as you 
briefly mentioned earlier, was that it created a free, easy-to-use online system that employers could log on to and create cases for their new hires. And all they were required to do would be to submit the same information that employees put in their Form I-9. And that checks that information against DHS and Social Security Administration records to confirm that the age and the identity documentation all match and the alien is authorized to work in the United States. And the interesting thing about the date of birth thing, because it's name, date of birth, social security number. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's actually impossible to fool any verify. I mean, there are ways you can borrow somebody else's ID. There are things, there's ways you could conceivably get around it, and some people do. But one of the common methods of identity theft has been to steal the social security number of, say, a kid in Puerto Rico. So you're Latin American, so that sort of works. And if you're the same sex and you just adopt the kid's name and social security number, the problem is if the kid was four years old, and that's what the social security information says, then you're obviously lying. And so there are certain kinds, that kind of identity theft is actually completely, essentially impossible with E-Verify. There are some ways to get around it, but that's why the age thing, the date of birth, I thought was always an interesting part of that information you have to add in. Absolutely. E-Verify is very effective at cutting out social security number-based identity theft. Right. What it has improved with, however, is using photo matching technology. So DHS does not have access to all states' license records for green cards, for work authorization documents, or otherwise known as EADs. If an alien presents those documents to an employer, the E-Verify system will ask the employer to make sure that it matches the photo that DHS has on record to ensure that that alien is not using a valid but different person's document in order to try to obtain employment in the United States illegally. Right. Like you borrow your brother-in-law's ID, you could still maybe get away with it if you kind of look similar or whatever. But mm -hmm. yeah, that, again, that makes it harder. And there are some, a few states that do, their DMVs do work with yeah, uh, USCIS. A, hand, yeah. a handful of states have signed up with what's called the RIDE program to allow DHS to obtain access to their driver's license records, but not every state has. Expanding ride program participation will go a long way in rooting out identity theft. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, like California would be a good place to get cooperation <laughs> from, and that doesn't seem very likely to happen. But that's an area of reform that DHS can make. DHS can require states to participate in that program using other methods. Oh, really? It would require regulatory changes or an act by Congress to right. make this change, but it would go a long way in deterring illegal unauthorized working or identity theft in the right, United States. Right. The one thing that the critics of E-Verify always bring up, they said and don't really say anymore is how burdensome it is, which is kind of ridiculous. It's not. I've We use E-Verify here for all new hires, and I've sat with our HR person several times and watch them do the e-verify thing and it's 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 nothing it's a minute it takes that's all but one criticism that may on its face seem plausible is that people who are legally authorized to work somehow get dinged and come up with what's called a tentative non-confirmation in other words a red flag basically that does happen sometimes in fact I know of um 
an organization where they had actually two women who hadn't reported their new married names to Social Security. But it seems to me that's public service. You want to know that Social Security has your correct information when you're 25, not when you're 65, and then suddenly find out they don't even know who you are. But it seems to me there just haven't been that many cases of authorized people who, other than you know this kind of married name issue, get turned down or get flagged as unauthorized to work. Because it seems to me if that ever happened, the person would be on the front page of the New York Times. What are some of the accuracy stats on E-Verify? Sure. You're exactly right. It could happen, but it's very rare. The statistics that USCIS puts out every year really demonstrates that it's very unlikely for a employer or employee to be burdened by using E-Verify. For example, of the 42.5 million cases E-Verify processed in 2021, 98.5% of those employees were automatically confirmed as work authorized within just a few seconds or up to a couple hours, requiring no further action from an employee or employer. E-Verify in 2021 properly determined that 1.3% of employees were not authorized to work in the United States. And of the 1.3%, USAS reported just 1% of cases as unresolved, meaning that the employee decided not to contest the tentative non-confirmation that they received from the E-Verify system. No, they're illegal aliens and they just yeah. sort of Put went, and went <laughs> yeah, left and just got another job. And I've seen this at certain fast food or fast casual restaurants where they'll have a sticker on the door saying, we use E-Verify. The point of which is, don't bother coming in here if you're an illegal alien. Exactly. It's interesting. D- deterrent, basically. Yeah, exactly. E-Verify is very effective at deterring unauthorized applying for employment. Right, even. right. And the problem, of course, is that only about half of new hires are screened through it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of big companies that use it. There's still a lot of people getting hired. Sure. Well, the federal government, through federal rules, only requires the government and its contractors to use E-Verify. A handful of states, I think as of 2022, Perhaps 20 states require some employers to use E-Verify, but only a handful of those require both private and public employers to use. And many of these laws also include carve-outs that allow certain segments of the population to avoid electronic verification altogether. Like agriculture. Exactly. Fields that have very good lobbyists. And a lot of the states follow, as you suggested, the federal government's approach, which is the workers employees of the state, government, and contractors are the only people who are required to use E-Verify. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. However, the number of state laws and local laws that require E-Verify do support the feasibility of mass implementation, even if currently E-Verify is not used across the board. So it was interesting. States were passing these requirements and the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, challenged it in courts saying this is immigration and they're not allowed to do it. How did that case work out? I mean, obviously, the Supreme Court decided states could pass E-Verify mandates. Sure. Well, in 2011, the Chamber of Commerce, in a case called Chamber of Commerce v. Whiting, challenged an Arizona law that required all employers in the state to use E-Verify to verify the work authorization of their new hires. And in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed states' authorities to implement their E-Verify 
legislation. And the key there was that it was properly drafted so that the state law did not impose additional penalties that the federal government doesn't already have in their scheme for regulating unauthorized employment. So as long as the state doesn't, let's say, impose severe criminal penalties where they're not in federal law and perhaps include carve-outs that the federal law already allows, which is penalizing employers through licensing laws and similar things like that, they'll be in the clear. Yeah, it seemed to me the main key there in most of these state laws is, and even there are some local municipal E-Verify requirements, are based on the business license issue. In other words, that it's a condition of getting a business license that you use E-Verify. And that's because Congress explicitly authorized that type of penalty. Interesting. Interesting. So can employers pick and choose who they E-Verify when they hire people? Not legally. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah. That's what I mean. So E-Verify requires participants to verify all of their new hires using the system. Critics of the program will say that employers who want to appear to be following the law may sign up for E-Verify and then pick and choose. However, there are a lot of criminal penalties associated with that type of conduct that are much easier for law enforcement to uncover than simply conducting Form I-9 fraud. So it would be a very stupid thing for an employer to do. They can get convicted on fraud charges, on tax evasion charges, more than just the unauthorized hiring of a legal alien. The cost-benefit, basically, is heavily on the side of using E-Verify for everybody because you're collecting the information anyway. And so if you're E-Verifying some people, the downside of picking and choosing who you're e-verifying as an employer is pretty steep, and the cost of e-verifying everybody is pretty small because you're collecting their information anyway. So why wouldn't you do it? And additionally, e-verify provides employers a very important benefit. It gives employers a presumption that they are not hiring unauthorized employers, and what a presumption in the law means that a court will accept this fact as true unless it's proven otherwise. So it provides employers with legal protections that they are following the law, that they won't quickly lose employees who are not authorized to work in the United States because they may become subject to immigration enforcement. It protects them on a handful of levels, whereas the risk of using E-Verify improperly really is not a smart business decision. Yeah. And the legal protection basically says that if you, in good faith, followed the rules and the person does end up being an illegal immigrant, nevertheless, you're kind of off the hook. Mm -hmm. That's the protection. It seems to me that's pretty important because, again, as long as they followed the rules and used E-Verify the way they were supposed to, there are some illegal immigrants who are going to sneak through the system. They have sophisticated stolen identities, what have you, and protecting legitimate businesses from facing consequences by unknowingly hiring a crooked worker is, it seems to me, an important benefit of using the program. The key here is that it's a significant step up from the Form I-9 process, which is a paper-based process that very rarely is subject to audit. Mm -hmm. And Very few employers are trained to identify fake or fraudulent documents. So generally, they just have to accept the information that a new hire provides them on its face and then store the paper form in their filing cabinet for a few years 
and hope nothing bad happens. With E-Verify, they're able to confirm that the documents are valid by using the government's check against the database. The interesting thing is that employers are required to accept the legitimacy of a document so long as it's, I forget the wording in the law, but so long as it's basically Mickey Mouse's picture isn't on it, they have to kind of accept the document as legitimate. And in fact, the Justice Department has a whole office that does nothing but ding employers, most of whom are basically just saying, I don't know, this doesn't look legit. You got anything else? Employers are not legally allowed to pick and choose what documents their hires present and, to them. And the problem is there's this wide range of documents that are permitted under mm-hmm. regulation. And I think one of the goals over the years has been to sort of narrow the number of documents because there's all kinds of tribal identity documents and everything that are, I mean, I don't know if the document itself is more prone to fraud, but if you've got a whole variety of different documents, some guy running a florist shop has no idea what's legitimate and what isn't. And so along those lines, another improvement or upgrade of E-Verify beyond something like narrowing the range of documents that somebody can present, that sort of thing, is something called G-Verify. And the point of that G is in government is that the government does the verifying. What does that mean? What's involved? And did that ever get anywhere? So the reforms that we generally call G-Verify would replace both the Form W-2 and the Form I-9 obligation and consolidate that to a singular system where employers would input the data on those forms into a government online system similar to E-Verify. And that would also alleviate employers' responsibility in maintaining copies of those forms for numerous years. And the benefit of using G-Verify would be that it would also provide instant or near-instant confirmation that an alien is authorized to work in the United States. And it would allow DHS to confirm that the new hire is not committing identity theft or otherwise committing document fraud. So that would actually combine the W-2, so it's sort of putting the IRS, Social Security, and DHS requirements all into one package. Yeah, the just reform. One, you'll just do it one time. Yeah, the reform would be administered by DHS, but it would combine both the Social Security Administration and DHS's responsibilities together. Interesting. And the business doesn't have to keep paperwork. Basically, mm-hmm. it reduces, I mean, the paperwork isn't that much of a burden. You just keep it in a file, but still- one less it thing. takes that it's one less thing. So what happened with that? I mean, there was an effort, as I understand it, a rule drafted to that effect during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. There was a regulation drafted in 2020, but it was not able to make it out of the regulatory process before the change of administration. So it still could be implemented. Right. That's a potential item on a to-do list for a new administration. And the rule was drafted, right? It was just never published. Exactly. As I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was making its way through the government regulatory process. Right, right. Which um, listeners may not know how the sausage works, but there's all kinds of hoops, notice and comment. And then there's a office at OMB that has to look at a regulation and decide whether to go ahead with it. It's kind of a learning experience once you delve into that, how stuff gets done. So what is going on with E-Verify now? 
because of COVID, there were some rule or at least temporary rule changes, right? Yeah, since March 2020, DHS has permitted many employers to defer the physical examination of identity and work authorization document requirements, which essentially means that they allowed employers to inspect Form I-9 documents remotely. So you can hold up your driver's license to the computer screen on Zoom and they can... Absolutely. Or send a picture, maybe, or photocopy. Yeah, great. (laughs) Which dramatically increased the vulnerabilities of the already vulnerable Form I-9 process. And this year, DHS submitted a proposed regulation to allow them to continue permitting this type of work authorization indefinitely. Their rationale was that employers, since the pandemic, have allowed many of their employees to to continue working remotely and it would improve business efficiencies. But in its place, it's considering mandating E-Verify permanently for employers who do want to do remote work authorization verification. Ah, interesting. Okay. So E-Verify is now back on the scene. (laughs) Interesting, interesting. So in other words, because of COVID, they're allowing employers who are not using E-Verify, just doing the paper form to basically look at a scanned picture of somebody's driver's license. Not only are they allowing people to present documents remotely, but they're also allowing employers to authorize third parties like random representatives to look at the documents for them. So they're outsourcing even that part of the process. Interesting. It originally was a COVID precaution. However, even DHS has recognized that that really is no longer justification, but they are reacting to the growing number of employees around the country working from home. Interesting. So on the one hand, that clearly makes it easier for unauthorized people to get jobs because it's easier to fraudulently submit documents. On the other hand, if the rule goes into effect and part of it is that anyone doing that must use E-Verify, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure where the balance is, but it seems to me that's clearly a plus, you know, on the other side of the ledger. Sure. It's always been my position that expanding E-Verify use is a good thing. We want more employers to E-Verify. We want DHS to require more employers to use E-Verify, and this could be a step in that direction. It also could be a step in the direction of showing the country that it's really an easy program to use. Costs are minuscule. It requires employees to submit the same sort of documentation that they're already required to under the 4i9 process. Right. And it could make everyone's lives easier and protect employers from legal costs later. Right, right. So one thing we didn't talk about is how does the E-Verify process relate to the Social Security no-match process? Because the no-matches, no-match letters that they used to send out, I think they stopped under this administration, would go out to employers who submitted a Social Security number that has a different name attached to it from the one that they have. So that becomes a lot more difficult, obviously, if you're using E-Verify, right? Right. So DHS doesn't do this currently, but DHS should expand its collaboration with the Social Security Administration and the IRS to uh, prioritize the employers that they audit based on records that the Social Security Administration and the IRS already have, knowing that there are no matches in their system. So those are more likely to be cases of unauthorized employment or identity theft. 
Right. Yeah. Interesting. A number of years ago, I think it was maybe CRS or it may have been GAO. Somebody did a report on the top 10 companies that had mismatches and they wouldn't name the company. They would just have the location, what city and state of the company. The number one no match respondent was a company based north of Chicago, which is to say McDonald's. They didn't say McDonald's, but there's no other company, literally no other company it could possibly have been. McDonald's actually, I think now is using E-Verify. I don't know if it's mandated for all franchises, but I'm pretty sure that the company stores all use it. And that's the kind of thing where you get the big employers to use it. You know, the large companies, they have the capacity, the HR systems and all of that to deal with it without any problem. And then you sort of deal with the smaller employers as you go along. And in fact, legislation to mandate E-Verify that's come and gone in various Congresses specifically takes that approach, where if you have a X number of employees or more, you have to start using it in one year, and then smaller employers have to use it in two years, that kind of thing. It's phased in by the size of the, size of the uh, workforce. The one thing we didn't talk about, and this actually is key at the state level as well, is whether there are audits and enforcement. Because if you just mandate E-Verify and then kind of go on to other things and forget about it, you're going to end up with a lot of people just blowing it off. So how important is following up and ensuring compliance? Very important. Widespread E-Verify use combined, and this is crucial, with adequate worksite enforcement are two of the most effective tools DHS has to execute its mission. It has to deter illegal immigration, cut off the job magnet, and also protecting conditions for U.S. workers, which include aliens authorized to work in the United States and U.S. citizens in their jobs currently. Employers that are happy to break immigration laws are likewise often happy to not provide adequate conditions for their employees, undercut wages, select employees they think will not report them for certain violations of labor and health laws, expanding E-Verify use, but not also auditing to confirm that employers are following the law. They need to be together. Yeah. And your point about employers violating immigration laws are going to be probably violating other labor laws as well is an important one. And that is one that the anti-enforcement people often bring up as an excuse for not doing immigration enforcement. They're saying, well, we should step up labor enforcement, labor standards enforcement. And I'm, I'm all for that, but they're, they're basically, the same. They're, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. They're picking and choosing. Whereas if the labor enforcement and worksite immigration enforcement people, and I assume tax enforcement and the rest of it work together, you're just a whole lot more likely mm-hmm. to uncover stuff that's going on. Sure. And the Biden administration has imposed a handful of policies since January 2021 that really restrict DHS officers' ability to audit. They have narrowed their enforcement priorities, quote unquote, to a very small group of people. They've imposed policies to prohibit enforcement actions in areas that they have termed protected areas or sensitive areas. But CIS's research has shown that 
the majority of the country falls under what is considered to be a protected area. So if it's near a playground, near a school, near a place where there might be a wedding, a place where there could be a parade. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Our our own John Fury has done a couple of maps where he's, you know, localized areas and then with a little circle around each of the supposed protected areas. And there's like there's a median strip somewhere in southeast Washington. Where you could enforce immigration law, and that's about it. The underlying idea, perhaps, is not crazy if it was a very tailored definition, but the way that the Biden administration has defined what is a protected area is so expansive that it basically prohibits DHS officers from doing any sort of enforcement action or audit. Which is the point, obviously. Exactly. So if any administration is serious about protecting working conditions and from deterring illegal immigration, they need to also be expanding their enforcement agenda. Along those lines, there was a meatpacking plant in Iowa. I think this was raided. It was during the Trump administration. And there had been suspicions that there were all kinds of labor law violations going on. But the state of Iowa and the U.S. Labor Department had never really been able to crack the place. Well, when they did an immigration raid, because they had intel that there were unauthorized workers, they not only found all kinds of illegal aliens working at this place, they found underage people working. They found wage and hour violations, all kinds of stuff. They cracked the place open, but they were only able to do that because they used immigration enforcement, not as a pretext, but as sort of the entree into enforcing it. And, you know, it seems to me that this stuff needs to go together. Labor Department needs to work with DHS. It's now under Biden basically prohibited from telling DHS about immigration violations that Labor Department runs across if they do an audit. And that's no way to run a railroad because, in fact, not only is it that you uncover issues, you know, 14-year-olds working in a meatpacking plant. But when you have illegal immigrants that you've arrested, they're a whole lot more likely to give you information on other kinds of violations, on who in the management is committing the crimes. If you can hold over something and say, okay, you know, we'll let you go home, no prosecution, no nothing, if you rat on your crooked employer. You're, you're not going to get that kind of thing, you know, if you're unwilling to do immigration enforcement. Mm-hmm, absolutely. The types of employers that specifically seek out unauthorized workers are the types of employers who are looking to exploit their employees. Even if they weren't unauthorized, they're, yeah, they they're want, just bad guys. They want to be able to pay them less. They want to be able to get away with things that their other employees may be more likely to report them for. Equally important, it subjects U.S. workers and U.S. citizens to unfair labor competition and economic harm in that way. It suppresses wages in those industries across the board. There are many reasons the government should be interested in enforcing immigration law and enforcing labor laws. And separating the two arbitrarily doesn't really make a lot of sense. And we're sort of at the end of it, but I just want to bring up at the end something we should have said at the beginning, that the reason for this, and you alluded to this, but we need to be more explicit about it, is that the reason we're doing this is that employment 
is one of the main reasons people are coming in the first place. In other words, it's a magnet that draws illegal immigrants. Some people are going to come no matter what you do. There's always going to be somebody breaking the law. But if you don't disincentivize people by making it hard to get a job, then more people are going to come. And if you, and the opposite is true. If you, you know, uh, make it difficult to earn money and support yourself here, if you're an illegal immigrant, it's just there's just going to be fewer people coming. I mean, there's no way around that. Barbara Jordan, who was the chairman of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, the one in the 1990s, specifically identified employment as the main magnet that draws illegal immigrants. So we're not going to get control of this just by building a wall, just by hiring more ICE agents, let alone Border Patrol agents. You've got to do all of it. You've got to have border security. You got to have visa security overseas, and you've got to make it hard for people to get a job once they're here. Because if it's easy to get by, if it's easy to live here, which is to say it's easy to get a job, if you're an illegal immigrant, people are going to find a way. Interior enforcement is almost just as important, if not more important, than border security. Like you said, migrants are rational people. The cost of immigrating illegally to the United States is quite high for many of them. Some overstay their visa, which is a little easier. <laughs> right. But aliens will not choose to subject themselves to arduous journeys across the desert if they know when they get here it'll be difficult to find a job. They won't be able to get identification. It'll be difficult to operate a business. It just it cuts off the primary magnet for legal immigration, which are generally economic motivations. Right. I think those are the true root causes. Yeah, exactly. In other words, this administration seems to want to say, we really shouldn't be enforcing immigration law until the whole world is Denmark and then no one's going to want to come here. Well, that's not going to happen. And the question is not why people want to leave their country which is always, there are always going to be lots of people who are going to want to leave their countries. You know, we're in a broken world. The question is whether they will choose to come here. Mm -hmm. And E-Verify is one of the key ways to affect that calculus and make it less appealing to come here. So thank you, Liz. Liz Jacobs has been our guest talking about E-Verify, about basically enforcement work authorization enforcement in general, but E-Verify is one of the most important tools for that. And we'll see what happens. This administration is probably just going to get worse and worse on this issue. But if there are new developments, uh, Liz, we'll have you back and talk about them in the future. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, this week, I wanted to talk about something that happened over the weekend. New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, visited El Paso, which is where a lot of the illegal border crossers who are ending up in New York have been coming through. Not exclusively there, but El Paso has been in the news in a big way because the president just visited there the week before. And I think it does highlight something that's interesting. Obviously, there's a certain amount of schadenfreude, as it were, in seeing the mayor of a sanctuary city, which is very flamboyant and Performative about protecting illegal immigrants, complaining about too many illegal immigrants showing up there. In fact, Mayor Adams went down to El Paso and said, among other things, quote, there is no more room in New York, unquote. 
He doesn't want people to be taking him up on the offer that his own laws create, which is come to New York if you're an illegal immigrant. So the first thing really is he needs to put his own house in order. If he doesn't want illegal immigrants showing up to New York, he needs to change his own policies and stop welcoming them and stop encouraging them to move to New York. But the broader issue, I think, is that Adams's visit, which was praised by Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago, who's also receiving lots of illegal immigrants and struggling to deal with them, it suggests the reason that the president the week before went to El Paso and had announced a supposedly new and improved border policy about which we are skeptical here at CIS. I'm not sure it's going to help much. It might help a little bit for a few weeks or a month, but in the long run, it's likely to make things worse. Nonetheless, the administration for almost two years has been insisting that the border is secure. Literally, they've just said the border is secure. The vice president said it. The head of DHS said it. It's laughable, but they've been sticking to that line, and there's no crisis, and they won't refer to the words border crisis. Nonetheless, they issued a border policy to address what is manifestly a crisis, and they acknowledge it's a crisis simply by issuing these new border policies. And the president went down there the first time in his presidency. It was mostly a photo op, but, you know, that's okay. Politicians are, you know, it's partly theatrical and, I mean, in a legitimate way. And so a photo op isn't a problem. The question is, why? And I think Mayor Adams's visit the following week suggests that the administration is getting pressure from the mayors, Democratic mayors of big cities, New York and Chicago, but also Washington and Philadelphia, and probably also at least from one governor, Governor Polis of the Democratic Governor Polis of Colorado, had been (laughs) busing illegal immigrants who made it to Denver on to Chicago and I think to New York as well. And he discontinued that program when the mayors of those cities complained to him. Nonetheless, a lot of Democratic officials who basically are left holding the bag because of this administration's terrible immigration policy or maybe a sort of border non-policy are not coming out publicly and criticizing the administration. They are saying things like this requires a national solution, that sort of thing. But they're not saying reinstitute remain in Mexico or, you know, tighten up on asylum or start detaining people. They're not offering the kind of suggestions that are necessary because they're politically constrained from doing so. Their own voters and their own constituencies oppose border enforcement as such. They themselves, presumably, in principle, are in favor of unlimited immigration and uncontrolled borders. Nonetheless, if you're the mayor of New York City or uh, other big cities, you're dealing with the actual consequences of the administration's border policies. And so I think I'm really quite certain that these mayors and governors have been calling the White House saying, you guys need to do something about this right now for political reasons. Presumably, they're worried about the 2024 elections, but also just for practical reasons, because it's enormously costly, which is the kind of thing that skeptics of uncontrolled immigration, like those of us here at CIS and others, have been 
pointing out for many years, these elected officials are loath to make those kind of arguments. Nonetheless, they're facing these costs and they have to deal with the reality of what Biden has created at the border. And so I think the reason we saw Biden go to El Paso is the reason we saw Eric Adams the following week go to El Paso because the Democratic officials behind the scenes have been pressuring the White House to do something about the border. The interesting question will be if the administration's latest and greatest border policies don't really do much, they don't abate the flow much, and I don't think they will. They will a little bit in some places, but I don't think it's going to last because the administration is almost doubling down on its invitation by offering these supposed new legal, and I use legal in quotation marks, pathways to come into the United States. They're actually encouraging more people to come up, which is why the border cities are seeing continuing flows of people from Central America and places even beyond that get up close to the border so they can see when the best time is to rush across and turn themselves in and be let go. So the question is, when the administration's latest attempt at making the political problem of the border go away, because that's what this announcement by the administration a couple weeks ago was, it was political damage control. When that fails, what then? Will the mayors of New York and elsewhere become more outspoken about the need for actual border enforcement and demand that people be detained, remain in Mexico, be reinstituted, safe third country regulations be instituted and enforced, that kind of thing? We'll see. But it's an interesting question. It's an interesting dynamic that the anti borders utopianism of the people running immigration policy in this administration is running headfirst into fiscal and practical reality in a lot of the cities where these people are going to. And very slowly, grudgingly, it looks like the administration may be pulling back from its most unrealistic approaches to the border. We can hope for the sake of the country, but I think for Democrats worried about elections, they should hope the administration returns to the successful policies of the Trump administration, because if this continues for two more years, they're going to be in for a rude awakening, I think. Even in places that aren't deep red politically, they're going to be in for a rude awakening come election day in 2024. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian. Please feel free to email us at center at cis.org if you have suggestions, complaints, compliments, whatever it is you have. And if you get this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate or review, we would very much appreciate you do that. Hope you tune in next week. <music>